Thanks for joining us at the Business Growth Cafe, where each week we select from a menu of topics for a focused discussion with an industry expert to provide insights that can impact your business's growth with your host, Angelo Ponzi. I am Angelo Ponzi, your host here at the Business Growth Cafe, and thank you for joining us. Whether you're an avid listener to the show or, frankly, you're here for the first time, the concept of the Business Growth Cafe is business advice, right? To give you guidance on how to grow your business and be successful. Now, we talk about business growth all the time on the show, and we recognize it's easy to say grow your business, but not easy to actually do it. There are so many factors, bumps in the road, obstacles that you'll face, not only in the early stages of your business, but as your business continues to grow. You need to be committed, passionate, unrelenting, persistent in your pursuit to build your business. Or another way of putting it is being undaunted in overcoming personal doubts and doubters, the naysayers, the challengers, and the myriad of other external and internal pressures that you will feel in growing your business. To survive and thrive, you need to be undaunting in your commitment to your success. So joining me at the cafe today is Kara Golden, founder and CEO of Hint Water. In her new book, Undaunting, Kara discusses her path that led her to the creation of Hint and, and their journey to grow their business. Kara has earned so many different awards, Fortune's Most Powerful Woman, Entrepreneurs, Ernst & Young Entrepreneurial Winning Women, Gold Stevie Award winner for Female Entrepreneur of the Year, Forbes 40 Women to Watch Over 40, uh, and EY Entrepreneur of the Year, Northern California. Again, so many. So stay tuned. Grab yourself a Hint Water as we explore the ups and downs of growing Hint Water into a successful business and a very competitive market and how the lessons learned can help your pursuit in being undaunted and growing your business. Your strategic plans are essential to managing your business's growth. Spend the time to develop a cohesive roadmap to follow to ensure your entire team is moving in the right direction. These plans should take the insights and the brand strategy work you've already completed to help you achieve your long-term business and growth objectives, as well as keep you competitive. These are actionable plans and should include the details of achieving your growth, including tactical implementations, timelines, budgets, and KPIs for success. Developing your plan is a team sport. Make sure you include the stakeholders from each of your strategic departments in your organization because everybody in the company is impacted by the success or failure of your plans. The following are six key questions to ask yourself. Do you have a clear understanding about what you're trying to achieve? Number two, what does your brand stand for in the eyes of your customers? Three, why do your customers buy from you? Four, what are your competitors doing? And five, what is your approach to sales? Where are your opportunities for revenue coming from? And number six, how can you differentiate yourself from your competition? Visit theponzigroup.com to learn more. Well, Kara, welcome to the Business Growth Cafe. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you, uh, you carving a little time out of your busy schedule. I, I, you know, I loved reading your book and we're going to explore your book. And obviously we could probably talk for a week about the actual path that's going to condense down to many years. So there are some key things that I want to kind of dig into. I, I 
I, there's some really things that resonated with me uh, throughout your book as an entrepreneur myself. So I do want to kind of take us on a journey, but kind of to get things going, obviously you are the CEO and founder of, of Hint Water, the number one unsweetened flavored water on the market. So congratulations on that because you are in an incredibly competitive space, not only today, but as you were building your brand. And, and so you know, just seeing how you positioned and, and niched and the perseverance and being undaunted as your book title. And I love that, by the way, um, and how you were able to, to really grow that. So why don't we kind of go back a little bit because you didn't grow up in the beverage industry. You kind of grew up in media and, and tech. So why don't we kind of start the journey there, maybe up to the tada of Hint Water. Yeah. So I... I uh, well, thank you first of all for the introduction, and and it's uh, it is a very challenging industry that I didn't know much about, other than the fact that I was a consumer of beverages, of of diet soda in particular, and I started my career in in media and journalism. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to work for Fortune magazine. That was my dream. And uh, although that didn't really happen, it did land me in New York at uh, Time Magazine. I went from there to what, what I think would be termed today as a late stage startup uh, called CNN. And Ted Turner was still running around the office. And, uh, you know, we were building the impossible. He had a vision for 24 hour news that was uh you know, so many people said, who needs it? I mean, I can't, why, why, what's wrong with six and 10 o'clock news? Yeah, and exactly. uh, so it was those, those kind of, those kind of moments, I think of working for people like that, that I didn't have a full appreciation for until much later. Mm -hmm. um, I moved to Silicon Valley um, and with my soon to be husband and ended up working for a, uh, startup that was a spin out of Apple that was doing CD-ROM shopping that was a little known, little discussed Steve Jobs um, concept that was taking uh, images and putting them on a disc rather than waiting for baud modem speeds. Dial-up um, was still pretty um, archaic. And, uh, and we were fighting with our siblings about, you know, not getting on the phone while they were on AOL chat rooms because you'd get cut off if for those of you who might remember those days. Uh, and America Online was one of our investors. They acquired us. Uh, so I went through my first acquisition in the uh, mid 90s. And that's when I was asked to run this business called e-commerce and shopping at, and was handling all the partnerships for America Online. So going out to retailers like J. Crew and L.L. Bean, I had the best job in the world. I mean, who wouldn't want to be dealing with retailers and shoppers? And and uh, that was my world. And uh it was, um, you know, finally a billion dollars in business, which I look back on too, as uh, nobody ever really thought that e-commerce and people would shop this way in the way that certainly they do today. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I decided it was a billion dollars in revenue and it was time to leave, it was my primary purpose was to spend more time with my family, which was not a very popular decision to many people. Um, I certainly had my own doubts whether or not I was doing the right thing, but I, I really 
didn't want to know the the United Airlines pilots better than my own family. Um, and crazy. so <laughs> I was uh, looking to kind of stay in the Bay and, and not travel as much while I had three kids under the age of four. And it was during that time when I think I really started to focus on my what I was putting into my kids' bodies and kind of recognizing uh, things that I had never really paid attention to, um, not just what they were eating and what I was buying for them, but also types of products that I was um, putting on their skin. All of that was kind of going on. Um, and then I finally decided I should really pay attention to all of that for myself, because in order to be the best parent, I, I have to practice what I preach. And it's not just about giving it to my family, but also giving it to myself. And I had gained a bunch of weight over the course of my pregnancies and was terrible at losing the weight that I gained, but also had developed terrible adult acne, which really bothered me because I had never even had acne as a kid. And, um, and now as an adult, I did. And so I was trying to get healthy and figure out exactly how I, you know, solve these problems while I didn't have a job. After I'd given up on sort of solving these problems through creams and, and uh, food, that's when I started one day purely by accident looking at my drink, my diet soda, my diet Coke in particular, and saw all of these ingredients that I was putting into my body, not really thinking that it was probably a problem because it was called diet, right? And, mm -hmm. and that was the key thing that I later learned that these healthy perception products like diet soda versus healthy reality uh, were all over my life. And I just decided to test kind of concerned that I wasn't really sure what I was putting into my body, but it was when I did this test and saw the results, that's when I realized that I had been fooled and marketed to for many years. I had been drinking diet soda since I was 15 years old. Um, I was an early adopter uh, when Diet Coke came out. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when I gave up the diet soda, that's when two and a half weeks later, I lost over 20 pounds, my skin cleared up. And what had seemed impossible to me was all of a sudden so easy. And I couldn't figure out why no one else knew about this. And, and it was just, it was this epiphany that had kind of happened in my own home that I thought if I could just take a product like I had been making in my kitchen at this point in order to get myself to stay on this path of just drinking water by slicing up fruit and throwing it in the water, then I could help a lot of other people who are spending billions of dollars on diet drinks, on uh, diets overall just by helping them enjoy water, maybe that's not all they have to do, but as a first step. And so I thought maybe while I don't have a job, maybe I should take this product to Whole Foods. How hard could it be to get a product on the market? And I explain all of this because I never really thought about it as, okay, I'm going to go start my own company. I'm going to do better than vitamin water out there. I'm going to take on big soda. For me, it was very personal because I, I had solved this problem for myself in my own life. And I felt like I had come, come across something that other people should know about. And, and that was the beginning.
you know, there, it, it's interesting. There's so many stories of people that kind of did something for themselves or baked the cookies and then turned it into a business. So I really appreciate that. I have a friend of mine who has a brownie business hmm. and the recipe's a hundred years old. It's been handed down wow. for generations. And she is the only one out of the generations and her sisters that ever decided to actually turn it into a business. And so uh, I certainly can appreciate that evolution. Uh, I was also a, a Diet Coke uh, junkie. That was kind of my go-to product. I kind of got off soda about 10 or 12 years ago, just to the pure nature. I reflected back one day as a child dumping Coca-Cola on my rusted bicycle chain. And I thought, if that could do that to my chain, what's it doing to my, <laughs> to my insides? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So, so I, I, you know, I've gone to water and I've been a, a water drinker for a long time. And, and I think we tried hint maybe earlier on, but never really adopted it. My wife likes the carbonated beverages, not soda, but water. Mm-hmm. And I don't. And so I just stick with pure water. So first of all, I want to thank you for reintroducing me to Hint because now it is a mainstay. It is mine. And more importantly, I got my wife to basically get off the, I'll say the brand name, LaCroix, that she drinks all the time. And and now, you know, we've got more Hint in the roof fridge than we do anything else. So uh, oh, that's, that, great. that's been a great discovery. Um, uh, and did it, you try the fizz, the Hint fizz, by the way? I have not. I yeah, have not. she'll she'll definitely like that. And and it's um it's a little harder to find. You can find it online on our website or on Amazon, but it's a little harder to find in stores because the the space, that category, carbonated waters and mm-hmm. fizzy waters is just very, very crowded. You mentioned a uh, one of the brands, a big brand in that space, and it's just become a commodity product and is frankly oh. kind of a race to the bottom with pricing for that <laughs> category. Uh, it's, um, you know, there's no margin left in that business for any business. So it's, it's sort of always has me stumped as to how that the, the, certain players in that industry stay alive. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll have to definitely check that out because that, that might solve and actually push LaCroix out of our refrigerator altogether. So uh, thank you for that heads up. But I love the flavors. They've been fantastic. Um, I, I did get a, I, I bought a couple free, not free bottles, single bottles at a store not too long ago. And one of them was lemon and I had two bottles and I told her one was mine, one was hers. And of course both were hers. And that was the end of that. So I haven't found it again, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to. Lemon is really good. Lemon was actually a really tough flavor. So it took us a, a lot of people are surprised to hear that that was one of the flavors that we wanted to do for a long time. Seems really simple, but it's, uh, it's one that because we're using real uh, fruit in the product. I mean, a lot of people know that uh, lemons, you know, turn into turpentine if you're, uh, you know, so it's. It's um, it you know, it's a tough thing. You have to be very, very careful with uh, using real fruit in order to actually not turn it in certain fruits. And that one is is one in particular that was because we use the essences and we're using the rinds. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, uh, you know, while we make it simple for the consumer to understand, it's actually a very complicated product to make. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm going to jump ahead to another question because we're on the kind of the flavor profile. So how, how do you determine 
now I'll say you, and maybe it's a team, but I, I got to believe it's mm -hmm. you determine what the flavors, the flavor mix is going to be. And, you know, how do you experiment with a lobby shop? I'm assuming you're not doing it in your kitchen anymore. So, um, you know, how do you kind of go about doing that? Well, we, it still does kind of incubate in the kitchen and start okay. playing around with different things. I'm constantly when I'm at, you know, farmers markets or traveling uh, over the last decade, I'll pick up fruits along the way. And I've always been a big fruit eater. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it was it's just kind of experimenting. And, and, uh, you know, what I found, though, is that over the years, people have asked me what flavors didn't work. And I think that I've tried things, for example, one of our flavors that we came out with was hibiscus. I grew up in Arizona. Um, you know this from being in Southern California, where there's, you know, huge um, uh, Spanish, Latin America, um, you know, population that is used to things that grow um, in, you know, Southern part of the U.S. and Southern, the, the Southwest. And uh, so I grew up drinking hibiscus teas. Uh, my mom was a huge sun tea, if you remember sun I tea maker. <laughs> and, and so we came out with a hibiscus product. We had a honeydew hibiscus and also a hibiscus uh, vanilla flavor. And they were amazing, but nobody understood them on the East Coast. And so it was, you could clearly see and, and, and I think it's an important point that when people buy products, particularly in the grocery store, unless they can actually taste it, they have a vision mm -hmm. for what it's going to taste like. And so we found that our top flavors are blackberry and watermelon and cherry, the exact same top flavors that are in you know, the fruit section and in a grocery store. And so while some may tell you they want unique and different whether that's the consumer or the buyer that is actually, you know, kind of your gatekeeper to getting on the shelf. The reality is, is that in order to have a broad base for a consumer, these kind of niche things like hibiscus, mm -hmm. although they tasted yummy, um, would not be a top flavor until people could actually imagine it. Um, sure. So, yeah. So, but we, you know, still incubate flavors, um, you know, our kids who are now all three in university and one in high school. I mean, they're, you know, they'll tell us uh, this is terrible. Uh, you know, they're, they're very honest about it. Oh, this is really good. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot about uh, things that Steve Jobs said over the years. And uh, one of the things that I think a lot about that he mentioned is don't ask your consumer what they want, show them mm -hmm. what they want. And I think that that's what we've learned. One of the chapters in the book uh, is, is something I say a lot, fly the airplane as we're building it. Um, I always advise entrepreneurs to get your product to market the best you can and as cheap as you can, because you're going to learn a lot once the consumer has the um, power to buy your product or pick up your product and, and without actually, um, telling you, they'll show you exactly what they'll end up doing. And I think that that's a, 
you know, really key thing. I mean, there's people who large companies spend, you know, millions and millions of doc- dollars doing all these focus groups. Uh, we, we don't do that. Um, even as we've grown into a much bigger company, we just get it out there and, and have consumers respond in, uh, and we find that the, that's a much better, much more predictable um, mechanism for figuring out what the consumer will do. So really looking at product movement, movement actually got research was one of my questions. Um, Cause I mean, I, my, part of my background is research and I've done a lot of c- consumer focus groups and a lot yep. of other taste, taste, testing. Um, and, you know, to your point though, a lot of times when you're, especially when you're talking, if you don't understand the, how to read the groups, there's 12 people, 24 people basically telling you, what they think, and then you're making strategic decisions off of 24 people. I tell my clients that is a, that's a bad thing. That's not what we're going to do. We're going to just use it for some fodder, some observational yeah. data, so we can make other decisions. And I love the fact that you you go into market and seeing how the product moves. And you said something else that I think was important in this talking about the hibiscus is understanding the cultural differences. I'll I'll use that term across the country. I worked uh, in the alcoholic beverage industry for a long time, and the uh, Jackson family group was one of my clients. We were doing this this um, campaign development, and it was about coastal. And so we just went, hey, California, we'll go down and shoot some water and you know watch the ocean, and that'll be our coastal. At the last minute, we decided to actually go test coastal in the market across the country. And what we found is coastal didn't mean the same thing to somebody in Michigan oh, and New York and Florida. And we realized the campaign would have bombed if we had just rolled it out the way we initially thought. So that was a kind of a learning lesson to understand the dynamics of of the market. And I I worked on another uh, um, Simple Green, which is an all-purpose household cleaner. And we were down in Florida and we were marketing to the Hispanic market and we're telling them how to use it, telling them how to use it to clean their floors turned out to be Culturally, they didn't clean their floors that way. Therefore, our product didn't resonate. So uh, I love the the way you guys are doing. Yeah, it's you know consumer behavior is in motivations is is so important to really understand that and getting the market read. That's why I love market tests. You know, get the product out there, see how it moves, and things like that. Um. So one of the questions I always ask my guests, and you, when I when you think about the continued growth of, of Hint. What keeps you up at night? Well, I first of all, I think the last 17 months for everybody has just been absolutely <laughs> yeah. crazy. Uh, for Hint, we were always, uh, in, in my mind, considered an essential product, but we are regulated um, by the FDA. And um, so I learned a whole new definition of essential product as an FDA essential product when the pandemic hit, when your country goes into pandemic status, it means a lot of different things, including the fact that you know, your plants need to be running 24 hours a day, you need to use best practices to make sure that um, shelves are being stocked and that you're supporting um, retail so that consumers um, can actually have water when uh, they need it, all of those things. So it's not just toilet paper. I mean, there were products (laughs) that are water that were also fell into that. 
And, you know, it was at a time the really I look at it as as March 13th when I woke up, we were closing our uh, New York office. Uh, we have a San Francisco office and a New York office and um, and really realizing that our uh, store shelves were out of stock, that people were hoarding um, products, uh, our products and other products. And um and, you know, it was, I knew that was kind of the beginning of, of we've got to put the um, pedal on, uh, on full throttle and, and get moving and figure out what can we do. Um, and, uh, and it was definitely, um, you know, a time when we were, we saw a piece of our business, an important piece of our business uh, to the tech community. Initially, we became the largest beverage in Silicon Valley to Google, Facebook, mm-hmm. um, with all offices closing. We knew that that business was going away. We didn't know how long it was going away um, for, uh, but it was at that point that we decided that we would have we had this channel beyond retail and beyond offices and food service. Um, that we could utilize, which was direct to consumer, which we had started back in 2012. And, um, and so we decided to really throw the gas on that. So over the last 17 months, that has tripled um, in size and uh, lots of other things that we had been focusing on automating um, a lot of our production lines when we're filling our product, uh, we don't use preservatives in the product. And so uh, we had been focusing on automating um, and getting people out of the room when we were doing the actual fill for concern that if somebody, forget about somebody having COVID, but somebody sneezing on mm-hmm. the line, if anything got in the bottle, we had been concerned. Um, nobody in the beverage industry was that concerned about it. We were coming from a different industry. Um, so our paranoia over the last four years um, actually became a uh, huge benefit to us being able to keep our plants open 24 hours a day. And uh, also the fact that we do everything um, in the U.S., so all of our production, all of our um, bottles are blown in the U.S. We don't, and I say that as an example, that uh, that most cans come from um, China. So when the virus is on a different schedule, hmm, um, that many of the uh, beverage industry, much of the beverage industry that produces their product in cans actually had to um, forego producing their product uh, for a period of time because there was a huge shortage because the plants were closed in China. So at that point, we um, we ended up in the beginning of 2020, the first half, we had already planned on going uh, chain-wide in Sam's Club, Walmart, and Aldi. And then we got a phone call from Costco to go chain-wide um, in May of that year. Anyone in their right mind would tell you um, all four of those at the same time, you're, you're crazy. Yeah, this exactly. is going to fail. Um, but we did it. Um, the team did it. We, um, we, uh, hundred of our people, members of our team are salespeople that, um, went out and service shelves with their N95 mask and their, um, 
and their gloves and hand sanitizers. And uh, we even came up with a uh, new product, uh, hand sanitizer that we created using our essences to make hand sanitizer smell better. Mm -hmm. Um, So we didn't stop innovating through the entire time. And uh, like I said, our direct to consumer business really took off, but our overall business grew over 50% during this time. Um, So, so, uh, you know, I kept feeling like we were doing an incredible job of keeping up um, and still believe we did an incredible job of keeping up, but I kept, you know, kind of worrying when, when is the shoe going to drop? Mm-hmm. You know, when is this not going to, uh, when are we really going to feel um, something? And, and I think um, we, uh, we did an incredible job. I mean, through it. And even though we fought, you know, losing pieces of business, we, we, I think a lot of the things that I talk about in the book of having diversified um, different channels of revenue coming in, um, if, you know, one piece goes away, I share stories in the book that, you know, can't put all your eggs in one basket. A lot of those challenges and lessons that were hard, Mm -hmm. um, what I saw during the pandemic um, was, was we were ready and, and we were ready to continue figuring out how to move forward. Even um, I had turned my manuscript in for my book right before um, March 13th. And it was uh, when I saw all of this crazy thing, craziness going on and trying to figure it out like everybody else. The first thing that I thought of was uh, the 2008-2009 financial crisis and how challenging it was for us as a company and obviously as an individual too. But the key problem that that our company had was that we didn't have enough money in the bank. And so we almost went under. We risked a lot personally in order to kind of get through that time. And so the first thing that I did as, you know, I was making sure my team was safe with all the um, N95 masks and everything else and joined them and going out to stores was, uh, was reaching out to raise capital because we knew we had all these different, these unique opportunities with Costco and, um, but we didn't have enough money. Um, And so it was, uh, we had to figure out a way and, I, I remember saying to my CFO, we need to go raise money. And he kind of joked with me and said, uh, do you realize all offices are closed? We're on Zoom now. There's no way you guys are going to be able to raise money. And uh, I said, we have to, we, we have to figure, we have to view Zoom as a tool. We mm-hmm. cannot view it as something that's going to stop us. And we have to figure out what we can do. And so I feel like, there were a lot of challenges that led up to this period of time for us as a company and me personally, that really were challenges when I was going through them, but really prepared me to push through. And by the way, we did, we did close around uh, within 60 days and, uh, and moved very quickly. Many of the people that we went out to thought we were crazy that we were, um, but but again, we had set the business up right. We were doing the right things and we were being proactive about what we thought we needed. Well, I'm, in your book, you talk about there's kind of several times when you went out for funding mm-hmm. and, and, and you, you referenced the, the, the recession 
And I think during that time, that certainly was challenging. Uh, you think you lost Starbucks at the time and then, you know, one door closed, the other one opened and then Amazon came in and, and there's that evolution of to that next level. But you, you guys did something that I found really right on brand on daunting is you got to a point where you went out and, and agreed with a, a strategic venture capitalist, whatever you wanted to call them, where you kind of risked it all. Mm-hmm. We're going to gamble. We're so convinced you are. We see, I said we already, you are so convinced that you were going to make it happen that you and your family really risked the next 10 years to pull it off. And so that, you know, that, that just was incredible to me to, to a lot of people might have said, nah, you know what? We're comfortable. We got some money in the bank. I don't know. Maybe this thing hasn't quite gone the way we want, but it's that perseverance and that push and the constant learning and evolving that I found in your book, just exciting. Um, uh, and, and then here you were again, we hit, come out of the, the uh, recession and now boom, there's a pandemic and same kind of thing. Opportunities creates a need and uh, you guys solved it. And Zoom is a tool, not an obstacle. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's absolutely right. And again, at the time, I mean, I, I remember uh, when I was sharing my book with a few people getting uh quotes um, from them. One of our investors is, is John Legend. And uh, I gave, gave him a pre copy of the book and he read the book and he said, you know, I kept thinking as I was turning the pages that this is where the company shuts down. And then I remembered I'm an investor and I think I would know if it shut down. (laughs) And, uh, and he said, you know, this is incredible. One of the stories that he remembered was that as well, because I think there's times that you go through these periods and even, you know, members of your family might not even know and, and what you're going through. Right. Mm -hmm. And because it's just, it's too complicated to explain why you would do something. Um, You know, maybe you have a little bit of your own doubts. Are you doing the right thing? Um, And then, you know, so many people will weigh in and say, that's really stupid. That's not the right thing. But it was really this conviction and belief that we were doing the right thing. And I was just sharing the story with um, somebody who hadn't read my book, an entrepreneur um, that was asking for my advice on uh, uh, on closing some money and had kind of not it was different, but it was similar. And and, uh, you know, I've, I'm a huge believer that you just because somebody's never done something a certain way, it doesn't mean you can't ask and and get creative. And, you know, if you really believe in something and you still feel really uncomfortable about it, maybe you lay it out that, you know, I'll do this. I'm not thrilled with it, but what I'd like to arrange is this. And what's the worst that can happen? They could say no. Right. And that is just, it's a life, right. It's a life lesson. And, you know, and I, and I think it, it really is something that resonates with people. Maybe they will never go raise money, um, but they look at that story as one where, you know, maybe they think for a moment that I'm this huge risk taker or that I never had any fears or I was brave. I was scared. I, I was scared that it might not all work out, that that was, you know, a bad decision. But I also believed that I had put myself into a position where, you know, I didn't really have a choice. And that's mm-hmm. the bigger lesson there is that when you, when you do that, 
then, then you run out of choices and then you feel like you're up against the wall and maybe the other side will actually um, go along with what you're suggesting, but maybe they won't. And I think that that is a lesson that, you know, we can all learn from no matter how many years we've been in business or how old we are, whether we're starting our career or whatever, it's just, you know, you ask for things that you want. The worst that can happen is that somebody says no. Um, and don't get yourself, if you can help it, into positions where you don't have options, because well, that is not a good situation. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that was um, something else that you talked about is having those options. So we, we talked about a little bit of the all the eggs in one basket. And, and I probably about 60% of my career was in the advertising business. And we were in tech at points in time. And when tech tanked, the agency tanked. So we always, we started learning, okay, don't do that. And we diversified. And, and, and I took these as kind of lessons and I, I had four lessons. I, I can't remember if you actually meant them to be four lessons, but I wrote them down as four lessons. And, and maybe we can just talk about them a little bit because yeah. you already just did it. So one was stay on good terms. And mm -hmm. I think that's what we're talking about. I mean, frankly, don't tick people off that you might need later on, right? There's no reason to. The other one you said was don't take it personally. It's only business. And in which I truly believe in that you know, during my days of going out, knocking on doors, I still do that. I used to be like, oh my God, they rejected me. And then somebody said to me one day, well, it's not you kid. It's just, it's just true. business. Very true. Uh, never put your eggs all in one basket. And the one you were just talking about, if you don't create a network of options, opportunities, potential partners and employees, you're putting it, you're putting your company at risk. And I thought those were four great lessons for my listeners, frankly, that, that they should, you know, think about, and, and, and maybe you want to expound upon some of those. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think that the first one uh, that you mentioned just about, you know, do your best to to um, kind of walk out the door with um, with your head, head held high. And, and um, you know, it was, it was interesting. I just had a post recently about this and uh, and it was it was interesting because the audience it was on TikTok actually and I have a very young audience on TikTok who are just kind of starting out and they're really interested in entrepreneurism and I was um, mentioning that you know if you're if the role that you're in the job that you're in um, you decide that it's not what you want to be doing for whatever reason you know do your best to actually uh, close close the loop. Right. And and not just for your boss. Right. Not just for whatever the person running the company, but that your colleagues are going to see that and your colleagues are going to be the ones that are going to remember you when maybe they hear about a job. Right. And they hear how hard you tried. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's not. And they're also going to cover you when there's extra work and they're still there. And so it was a really interesting dialogue because most people are like, uh, they never cared about me or whatever. I'm like, all of that is probably true, but it doesn't matter because the co your colleagues and how you actually walk out the door is the more, most important thing. Now, if somebody mm -hmm. asked you, instead of staying two weeks, they ask you to stay for a month and you can't because maybe the next job that you're going to will go away or whatever. You still you're you're expected to do certain things like stay two weeks, but nothing more than that. And so lessons like that 
I think are, are just, you know, you do your best. It doesn't always work out, but you really do your best to kind of leave with your head held high. And the same to your point with working with, you know, other partners, it's, it's, you never know where people are going to land. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think that while the, the story of Starbucks, I, I certainly understood that they were making a decision to remove us from the case because they wanted to make room for higher margin business um, sandwiches that they could have a higher ring and higher margins all made total logical sense. And it was great for them. It was terrible for me. I had all this inventory in my warehouse. I didn't know how I was going to go back and Um, deal with not only the inventory that was going to go bad, but my investors and how I would share that millions of dollars of business was going away in two weeks. What like, it wasn't fair. Mm -hmm. I I had every right to go and, you know, tell the people off at Starbucks, but instead I quietly hung up the phone and I was not happy, but I also felt like, you know, I have a choice. I can sit there and, you know, be really angry. I was, and then when I absorbed it all, what I realized is I was most angry with myself because I cared about this account so much because I didn't have another and I didn't have options. And so the story of don't put all your eggs in one basket, I think it's, it's celebrate your wins, but then always have lots of options because you never know what will happen. And when you're not privy to strategy on the other side or um, or how well financially they're doing, maybe they go out of business, um, you know, you you don't want to be the last one standing in that situation and, and really holding on um, to nothing in the end. Yeah. Um, so the third one you mentioned, just so I. Oh, third one. So I was uh, stay on good terms. Don't take it personally. Never put all your eggs in one basket and don't create a network of options or you don't, if you don't create a network of options, opportunities, potential partners or employees, you're putting your company at risk. Yeah. So the, the one about, I mean, I have multiple stories about, about this topic in particular, but the um, don't take it personally. I think, you know, when I first, I had never raised money for a company before I had, you know, been at companies where it was someone else's. Um, role. I wasn't the CEO or, uh, you know, I wasn't the CFO, so I wasn't raising money. So I didn't really understand. I felt like as a tech executive, when people were calling me from tech and saying, Hey, you know, I hear you're starting a beverage company. I'd love, we, we have a pool of money, you know, a fund that we're going to, that we deploy. Maybe you want to come in and, you know, they want to, have meetings, which entrepreneurs, time is your most valuable thing, right? Exactly, and so exactly. not really understanding, um, you know, the, the sort of goals of that fund, if somebody wants to, uh, if they're investing, if they've only ever invested in fintech, for example, they're probably not going to invest in a beverage company. Um, so I'm not saying don't have the meetings. But if you're really time constrained and know that your odds are really um, low, um, that that they're ultimately going to invest. And again, when a few of those people uh, in uh, Silicon Valley, Sand Hill Road were saying no to me, I thought that, you know, my my uh, my baby was ugly. Right. That they were they didn't like it. They didn't really understand it. They were worried about, well, if, if this is really such a great idea, then 
what will happen when Coke comes out with their product to mm-hmm. um, go and compete against you, which by the way, I was never really worried about that. I mean, I, I was a little worried about it for a moment, but what I figured out and you know, what I've learned along the way too, is that the, uh, the large guys that focus on other things are not really the people that you have to worry about. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the people that are not as innovative and, and, uh, and, aren't as crazy as you are to go and start an entirely new category. Well, more importantly, they hadn't identified that category as viable. And, and, you know, your conversations in the book with, with the Coca-Cola people were interesting. (laughs) Um, And, uh, and, you know, I've dealt with some larger organizations throughout my career and again, through my advertising days, I got to work with some very big global companies. And it's very interesting as, when you're talking to some of the developers versus the marketing people versus the C-suite people and the attitudes they have about competitive products and in market niches and things like that. And, and normally I'm there as a strategic planner. I'm, I'm a fractional CMO these days. And so I look at things a little bit differently than maybe they do because they're not necessarily out in the trenches and, and kind of seeing how things are going. So it's, it's always interesting. Well, and I think, I think, you know, you've seen this obviously a lot in, in your roles where, you know, I think that the challenge with companies when, when you're, you know, in the billion dollars, you're in the large public companies is as long as things are working, you just continue doing the same thing. And that's, Mm -hmm. that is the, um, you know, my father had, actually been, I call him a frustrated entrepreneur working for a large company called ConAgra. And uh, he had developed a a product actually inside of our armor company, which was acquired by ConAgra called Healthy Choice. And, um, you know, I used to hear his frustrations of, of dealing with, um, you know, here he is innovating and, and his whole purpose of starting that product was because he thought that Stouffer's TV dinners were terrible. And my mom had gone back to work and he wanted to start a healthier and better tasting product that he actually understood what it was versus, as he said, mm-hmm. mystery meat, um, you know, in the original <laughs> um, TV dinners of the 70s. And so I think that innovation is just something that I think most really smart, large company people would say that they're just not really good at innovating and and going in and starting not only new companies, but also new categories, which is what we did at Hint. Right. A lot of times I think they just throw money at it and thinking they're just going to bully their way there and it doesn't always work out that way. Um, You know, one of the things you you mentioned in 2012 and, and really currently moving really more direct to consumer. And I'm not sure you mentioned this in your kind of opening, but I called it, you very, you had a strategic advantage over a lot of the other folks out there as you actually came from that kind of e-commerce. I think you did mention it briefly that, but you really kind of cut your teeth in a sense on, on the e-commerce world. And so that's something you were very comfortable with and probably easier to roll out at Hint than maybe other people were thinking about. Yeah, I I definitely had exposure to it. I think that the key thing, I had never launched my own store though. I had seen other people launch their stores Mm -hmm. and I, and I, 
I sat patiently watching um, the struggles of many big brands. Um, you know, the gap is one in particular that was um, very confident initially about being able to deliver, you know, individual packages to people. But remember, I mean, the gap still, you know, to this day, um, they don't have a catalog. They have a direct to consumer business, but the, the early uh, adopters and the people who had it easiest in being able to do direct to consumer were the ones that had were used to shipping individual packages to people. So companies like LL Bean had been doing it for years. And so it was very easy for them to jump into direct to consumer, but others, maybe even others that seemed bigger that were on every corner um, were were really challenged by how did they do it and how, you know, they they didn't have a customer service center. They didn't have a pick and pack operation. They did large trucks to these stores, but it's a very, very different model. So mm -hmm. I think what I learned was because I was really in there in the beginning watching their challenges um, is that you can learn through challenges. They don't have to be your own challenges. You learn through other people's challenges, but still it was scary when it was going to be my own that here we were starting. But I think that the other thing that thinking back on my career is, even though I was in some cases not working directly, but maybe you know very indirectly, significantly, um, multiple levels down from them, but somebody like Ted Turner being a, you know, visionary and, and while everybody else is saying he's, you know, crazy about a 24 hour news channel, um, you know, he put stakes in the ground around that idea and started showing people why they needed it. And then, you know, there were leaders of countries who actually learned that their country was going to war. Um, by watching CNN. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really what put them on the map. Um, but also just being, I, I, I was always curious, but somewhat obsessed with these people that seemed a little crazy and had this vision, but actually were creating services and products that people loved. Not a lot of people initially, but they were building audiences. And so watching that and knowing you know, little things along the way, like, you know, you be very clear about your mission and mm -hmm. you don't sway and you have to hire people that believe in your mission and people that are better than you at certain tasks, not saying that you don't, you don't understand what those functions are. As I say, and on many um, talks that I give on college campuses that, you know, in order to run a company, you can't just be an engineer. You can't just be a good marketer. Right. You actually have to understand how to build a business plan and have respect for the finance and have respect for the for um, the marketing and the engineering and all of those things. Um, but again, kind of living that was my journey. I didn't know I was on that journey, um, but huge, great preparation for being able to know that I can do it. I can knock walls down. I can do what others think is impossible. I can start a new company, a new category, but I have to be patient. I have to get the consumer to catch up to where I'm at. I have to take steps along the way that allow me to get a little bit further, that'll, that 
I have to keep chiseling at the rock Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, continue to make progress and frankly, celebrate that progress, especially when things seem really, really hard and down, which they do at certain days. And it's also another reason why I really wanted this book to get out there, because I think there's this idea that being an entrepreneur is, um, you know, you're, you're the unicorn or you're the failure. There's so many things that happen in between um, that can really uh, affect the outcome. A pandemic can happen and how prepared you were, how much you are willing to um, ask questions, learn from your mistakes, not make the same mistake twice. All of those things I think need to be told over and over to people um, and, and not just people who are wanting to be entrepreneurs or who are entrepreneurs. The number of parents I've spoken to who have shared with me that they've gotten a clearer idea about what their kids are going through mm-hmm. um, through this time because it's a it's a lot. I mean, it takes it it really um, you know it takes a toll on people too to go to be an entrepreneur and uh, especially when people think you know what you're doing is is uh, not right in some way or a little off. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned a couple of things that I think they were important, and that's talking about you know, understanding the different roles. And when I consult with my clients, one of the things I say is everybody in the organization needs to understand the brand, needs to be able to to communicate it on on a second's notice. But more importantly, they need to understand that they're not isolated in their jobs, that everybody is intertwined. If marketing and sales do a great job, well, then manufacturing is going to have to produce, inventory is going to make sure they're stocked. uh, You know, the delivery folks are going to have to make sure... Everybody, there's a cause and effect. And if they don't understand their piece of the puzzle, yeah, then they're missing it, right? They're just doing a function and they don't understand the cause and effect. And so I think that was really uh, an important thing that you said is, is people start to grow their businesses and it gets beyond you doing it all yourself, right? Now you've got team and the team has to understand the vision and they have to understand what they're trying to accomplish or what the goal of the company is. And then again, how they make that happen, I think is, is really important. At one point in time, Hint was a product. Now, Hint's a brand. Mm-hmm. When did that transformation happen, do you think? You know, I think over time, it's been it's been growing. I think for me personally, um, when we, uh, a few just only a few years ago, we already had our direct-to-consumer business in, in uh, place, and I had a scare with skin cancer. And I had basal cell skin cancer on my nose, um, being a redhead, way too much sun over the years. Um, it was uh, it was my time. And that's when I had a uh, conversation with myself around why I didn't wear sunscreen. And I definitely wore it at the beach. I typically didn't wear it on my face. Um, I trusted uh, SPF and makeup and, and, uh, thought that that was good enough. And then when this occurred, that's when I said, gosh, I need to start wearing sunscreen. I looked first of all, for a sunscreen that I really enjoyed the experience. Um, something that I've learned in, in developing my own product is that it's, it's something that, you know, the bottle, the feel of it, the, um, the taste, the smell, everything. It's one thing to be able to get trial. It's another thing to be able to get the consumer to buy it over and over yeah, again repeat, and engage. Yeah. Right. 
And so it's, um, there's a lot of factors there. And so for me, sunscreen, I felt like there were, there were lots of problems with the ones that I had almost bought, or maybe I tried um, the consistency, um, this whole concept of unscented versus, um, you know, a tropical coconut smell, which I'm allergic to coconut. So for me, I was always a little bit paranoid. And then the other piece of it was that these products that were available at dermatology offices that I actually did like the consistency and in some cases did like some of the smells, they didn't smell too bad, but they were expensive. They were like $70 a bottle. And I thought in order to get quality products, do, do you have to spend 20, for, for your own health, do you have to spend $70? I mean, even if you can afford it, I just thought it's crazy. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people who need to wear sunscreen that don't because the price gets in the way. So I did what every great entrepreneur would do. I bought all the ingredients and I started, went back to my kitchen and I started playing around with it, not to actually buy um, or not to actually launch a uh, product for Hint sunscreen at all, but instead um, because my curiosity was there and I wanted to create something that I wanted uh, to have. And maybe I would just continue making sunscreen in my kitchen if I really liked it enough. And that's when a friend who had been in the beauty industry was over and she said, uh, you know, you have to get this approved through the FDA and, and you have to, I, you have to apply and it's this different division. And so I started going online and looking and they needed a name for the company. And of course I didn't have a name because that was not my intent. And so I put the name hint in there. And then about a year later, we got the approval back that hint sunscreen was available. And I thought, huh, I wonder if people will even like it. So we had this direct to consumer channel. We literally launched it the next week to see whether or not consumers were interested. We had names of consumers, right? From our own mm -hmm. purchasers. Yeah. So we didn't have to wait. Um, we didn't have to meet with any buyers. We just launched it. And we said, hey, we weren't even prepared enough or wise enough to go out on the beach and spray it all over people. I mean, it was, it was, we basically just said, let's just see whether or not it works. So we sent out an email, like 80% of the people who had purchased Hint in the last 24 months bought a bottle of Hint sunscreen, which I thought nice. was insane, <laughs> right? I mean, it was, it was crazy. They hadn't even tried the product. So that was the moment when I said, we have a brand, a brand that people trust, that they, they want, they wanted to, we shared the story of what my why was and people, it was $20 a bottle versus $70 a bottle and people bought it. And I thought, wow. I mean, that's when I knew that I had a brand when people would buy something just based on the fact that they loved the other product that they had purchased from us in a totally different category. And, um, and then the other piece of it, not related necessarily to when I knew I had a brand, but in terms of my purpose, I had, I had believed when I finally said, okay, maybe I launch a sunscreen, maybe I put hint on it. Um, you know, there was few people in the beverage industry who said, what the heck is she, you know, truly a tech executive, <laughs> whatever, what is she doing? 
anyway, and they'll, you'll always have people talk. You'll always have the haters out there. And, um, and then one of our customers wrote to me and said, somebody's ripping you guys off. They just, uh, and they showed me a picture. It didn't look anything like our uh, Hint sunscreen, um, but on the bottle, it said no oxybenzone. And I reached out to the customer and I said, so with, am I looking at the right bottle? And they said, yeah, but you were the first to put no oxybenzone on the bottles, at, at least the first that she had seen. And she said, and now there are sunscreen companies that are reformulating and putting no oxybenzone on there. And I thought, you know, if I can actually help our consumers, not only by developing great products under the Hint brand, but if I can actually nudge these large companies to do the right thing in the name of health and reformulate, because we're out there and we're marketing and sharing with people great sunscreen that doesn't have this ingredient, that's awesome. Right. That's that I've served my purpose. And, and so that has continued to happen over and over again. And so, you know, frankly, it's sort of another topic that I share in the book with, with entrepreneurs is that sometimes, you know, there's room for lots of people, especially when you're developing a, a category. If you start something just because somebody follows, just because somebody, um, you know, has an ingredient that maybe you called out as something to remove, that doesn't mean that you can't survive. That doesn't mean that you can't be better. Um, you know, it, it just means that you are leading mm -hmm. and you are, um, you are creating change and disrupting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really, and for me, when you were talking, it's going from, I'll call it a challenger brand that's sitting into a, a sea of other sunscreens. Mm -hmm. you, defined, you defined a niche, something that you could capitalize to differentiate yourself. And then all of a sudden they started chasing you. So you literally went from a challenger to a, to a leader overnight. And I love that. that that's fantastic. Because to me, it's about differentiation. It's looking for something that's unique and and, and helps define the brand. And so you can really, you know, separate yourself from the competition. So I thought that was really cool. Um, if you could do it all over again, what would you do differently, if anything? I think that the number one thing that I've learned, I mean, I've learned a lot in this journey, but I think that the number one thing that I, that I spent a lot of time doing was was really doubting myself that I was capable of doing something like starting a company um, and, you know, starting a new category when I figured out a couple of months in that that's exactly what I was doing. Um, I wanted to have the industry experts um, in, you know, I would buy the, um, the, I would try and meet with anybody who had worked for these large companies because they were going to wave their magic wand and solve all my problems. And what I've realized by talking to so many um, successful entrepreneurs is that the best ideas um, definitely come from from outside of the industries, right? That people are typically trying to solve a problem for themselves or somebody that they care about. And, uh, and where that actually 
they then realize that it could actually be something that lots of other people are interested in. And mm -hmm. they don't have to be working in their industry. In fact, the lenses are actually clearer if you come from outside of the industry, if you're a consumer and you see this solving a need in some way. And so for me, um, the time I spent hiring industry experts or people that knew more than me versus actually, uh, I always owned that I didn't really understand the industry, but I guess I felt a little skeptical whether or not I'd be able to figure it out. And I think that if you believe in yourself and believe that you're smart and believe that you're capable of doing things, it may take you a little longer to go and accomplish something, but it mm -hmm. doesn't, and, but it doesn't mean that you can't. And it doesn't mean that you won't. And in fact, maybe you'll actually do it a little bit differently and people will start following you. And, uh, you know, everything from not only creating a new category, but creating a new way to, uh, to bottle the beverage without preservatives. Um, when I came into this industry, everybody told me focus on uh, retail. It's only in retail. Well, there were tech offices. Um, that's kind of where we grew up, um, by the way, uh, not spins data, right? So there were many people who said it doesn't matter because it's not on spins. And I, I mean, we made money. They bought product, right? We were able to kind of grow up. Mm -hmm. We had lots of influencers who then went and said to Whole Foods and Costco, you guys should really have this product because we would love to buy it just because it wasn't, you know, being measured in some way didn't mean that it wasn't sales. Yet that was some of the stuff that we had heard from the industry early on. And then, of course, direct to consumer. I mean, the fact that, you know, when we started direct to consumer years ago, I wanted to start it not to compete against Amazon or um or more than anything, I wanted to do it because I wanted to have that relationship with the consumer and be able to have that one-on-one -on -one, uh, research and dialogue. And I wanted the data um, versus having to go and, uh, you know, and not get it from Amazon, <laughs> not get it from Amazon, not get it from these retailers, yeah. because when I realized that they believed that once I sold them the product, that it was their customer. And, yep. and so now, I mean, we sell about 50% of our business direct to consumer, another 50% through retailers. And, you know, once you understand that, um, that it's their data and we have our data, we can all live in perfect harmony, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't, mm -hmm. I think what we've been able to navigate and what we've been able to do as a company too, is do something that I think many, many um, consumer products thought was impossible because they were worried about stepping on toes and worried about, you know, you got to do retail or you got to go direct to consumer. And I think when you grow up and you're just trying to get sales and try and figure out where your customer is and how do you, how does your customer shop? And um, I think, you know, looking at the, looking at the last 17 months in particular, I think the thing that is most clear to me is that this consumer controls the destiny of how they shop. Yeah, and yeah, I was gonna say the, the, the digital transformation has just been unbelievable in the last 17 months. And, and in the shoppers now, 
can get the data, get the information, control what they want to buy, where they want to buy, and they never have to actually leave their house. So there's there's so much in, in the change in dynamics and channels. And I think yeah. that's one of the things you're talking about is, is you know, traditionally I got to be in the grocery store and I got to be in the liquor store or whatever it happens to be. That just doesn't have to happen anymore. And there's ways to reach consumers. And frankly, they like the convenience. But they like, but they like going to the grocery. I mean, our consumer mm-hmm. who buys from us online, just as an example, also goes to Costco. They may not go to Costco every week. They go monthly. And if we are there and there's a variety pack that they could maybe, maybe not buy online, but it's the convenience and they still like retail. And so we know that our consumer who shops online doesn't just shop that way. They also go into other stores and, um, but, but it's their choice. And so if you're not servicing all these different channels, if you don't have an offering in all these different channels, then you risk the, the opportunity to, you know, you're missing that consumer and how they're choosing to shop. Yeah, I know my wife, I think she hits like four or five different grocery stores plus yeah. Costco. And then, you know, we do stuff on online as well. I know we're, we're kind of coming down to the end here and I appreciate you, uh, you yeah, know, giving me the time. There was something you mentioned in your book and I had to chuckle a little bit because I, I experienced this. And that is I, I work with my wife, worked, not, not now, but I work with my wife for, we've been married 31 years. We probably worked together for 21 of them. Um, through either our ad agencies or, or consulting businesses that we had. And uh, the question I always got is, how do you work with your wife? <laughs> I couldn't do that, right? And so, you know, through your book and kind of the evolution of, of your husband and how you guys started really working together. And and I don't know if I dreamt it or was in the book, but it was like people asking you, how do you work with your husband? How do you work with your spouse, right? Yeah, and I, I think it, it was an accidental um, decision as well. I think that it, more than anything, he saw that I had this idea um, for a business and he thought he's the first person to say he thought it was crazy. I, he thought I had other opportunities. He wasn't quite sure why I was doing it, but he also felt like I was enjoying what I was doing. I was very curious. I thought I was solving you know, a problem and who wouldn't want to see you know, any member of their family have that passion and interest and curiosity. And after, you know, he was sort of keeping one ear to kind of what I was doing, he also saw me writing checks off of, um, you know, our bank personal joint bank account. Uh, we live in California, right? So he was kind of like, wait, what are you doing? And, <laughs> and uh, you know, he's a Silicon, former Silicon, a recovering, as he says, Silicon Valley um, tech attorney, intellectual property attorney. And so he, uh, he, why not? He started helping me deliver cases when I said, Hey, what are you doing? Can you go take these down? I'll, I'll change an extra diaper. If you, if you do that. (laughs) And, um, and so that's how it started. And then what he realized was what he really had interest in was the operation side. And so some of the stuff that I was bringing up as, you know, specs, like the, the, um, the, you know, not having preservatives in the product, for example, um, he had prior to going to law school, he actually worked in molecular biology research at Cornell in New York. Um, 
at Cornell Hospital and, and um, was very, very passionate and interested in sort of the science side of things, the why. And so he started, you know, digging in and also being an intellectual property attorney. I mean, it was kind of what, what the way his mind worked and mm-hmm. he was very intrigued and interested. And so he would get on the calls with many of these bottlers that I was talking to. And what we realized is we had this like yin and yang. We not only had, you know, children together and really, you know, enjoyed each other's company, but one of the reasons that we really enjoyed each other was because we had different skill sets. And we had, you know, this, we had this ability to appreciate each other's, um, you know, here's where he comes in. And so this dog and pony show, we again, didn't sort of, there was never any fight. Oh, talk to him. He's much better. Talk to her. She's, you know, much more interested in that. Um, Having said all of that, what I think that the beautiful thing is, is that it's allowed us over the years, he's our chief, our chief operating officer. And, um, and, the, the interesting thing is, is, is that there are, there have been days, especially raising a family of four kids where I've had to jump in and do things and kids have been sick or whatever. And I've had meetings that I wasn't able to go to. Um, and he's been able to jump into those meetings because I think being in the same house, we definitely know what's going on with each other. Um, and, you know, as I share with, uh, with people as well, the same is true. If I have to go to a plant and actually um, run our product or understand specs, I know enough about what's going on. Um, but I'm also um, very, very confident that the way that he set it up is, is uh, you know, the way that it should be set up. So I think it doesn't work for everybody. But where it does work um, in our house is being able to have a focus of two things, our family and our business. It, it To me, it almost seems easier when I hear people talk about multiple executives, multiple families, very complicated. For us, it's it's actually really simple. Uh, it's, uh, it's our family and it's our business. And this is what we do. And, um, and it's, uh, I think if we were both, uh, I don't know, both finance people and we were starting a company and maybe, you know, we'd have a difference of opinions about mm-hmm. stuff, but it's very clear that we respect each other's what we're really good at. And we believe that each other is really good at things um, that maybe we're not as, as um, interested in, or um, it's not that we can't do those things either. I think that that's the other thing that, you know, when I hear entrepreneurs um, say, oh, I don't know anything about that. You should talk to them. I think that's not really the right answer either, that yeah. you have to learn all the different aspects about a business. You can't not understand, um, you know, direct to consumer and, and all these things that will could cost you a lot of money and get you in a lot of trouble if you don't really understand all the different aspects of it. So um, yeah, but it's been a lot of fun. We're, we just, had 26 years, um, uh, celebrated 26 years, three in college, one in high school. That's um, great. Congrats. <laughs> yeah. Trying to help them find what they want to do when they grow up and, and, uh, find their passion. And, and, um, but I think also we've just, we've created a house where I think we we're raising kids who, um, I think if nothing else, they believe that, um, if they have a dream, 
Um, if things seem hard, they just have to figure out the steps. And um, if things don't work out the way that they thought, then they have to figure out why. Mm-hmm. And they have to keep moving and doing things. Nothing is too hard if you just figure out steps and you figure out how to take it on. Yeah. Uh, it, very reflective of, of ours. Uh, we have three older children. They're out in the workforce now, but they watched us as entrepreneurs grow a business and have the opportunity to sell a business, but they watched all of that and they're all off doing their thing. And, and a couple of them are extremely entrepreneurial. And I love it. so, yeah, so they, they're, they're not afraid of it because they've seen it. They understand it. So I, I, I have one last question and then we'll, we'll, we'll part company here. I hate to do it. I got a lot of questions, but I, I got one more. I'm going to ask you what, inspires you every morning? What, what inspires you to get out of bed and do it? You know, I think just, and, and, and this has almost been full circle for me because I, you asked me a question earlier about, you know, what I didn't know early on. And, and I think having that relationship with the consumer, even from day one of getting the product on the shelf and hearing from uh, first customer who wrote to us said, oh, I love this product. I've been looking for a water that doesn't have sweeteners in it. There's this energy and this, um, this fulfillment that you get from having feedback from a consumer that they like what you're doing. And I think it's fascinating to me that you can develop a product or a service and you can hear from somebody that doesn't know who you are personally, right? Mm-hmm. But they just like what you did for them. And I think that that is, is what gets me up in the morning is developing great products that get people health, healthy, that inspire people to know that they can, right? They can get healthy. They can get through type 2 diabetes. They can get through cancer. They can go out and, and start a company without having, um, you know, the, the right background or the right uh, training. Um, so that is, that is really, you know, my mission and purpose as an individual is to, um, be able to show people what they can do. And, um, I've, I, I feel that I've done that, um, not just with hint products, but now with the book and, and it's, um, that's what gets me up in the morning. Right. Well, fantastic. Carol, this has been great. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Like I said, I have, I have lots of other questions, but maybe Thank another time. Um, why don't you tell the listeners where they could buy the book, uh, your website, any kind of information that you want to impart uh, and uh, let them know where the, especially where they can buy Hint. Uh, I'm, yeah, so- I'm encouraging it for sure. Yeah, Drink Hint or Amazon or any store pretty much uh, has Hint products and uh and the book is on Amazon and lots of bookstores. It's called Undaunted, Overcoming Doubts and Doubters. And um, really about the journey of building something that is pretty special. So I'm, I'm really happy to share it. Yeah. Uh, re- real quick. Are you doing dog toys too? Because I know you kind of sent me a little care package. And, and I actually, my son has two dogs and I gave him um, the, the dog toy. Oh, yeah. And the dogs have been walking around with, they tell me he won't let it go. Um, I think I sent a, a, a picture to your assistant. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's very cute. And they love it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, it's, um, as somebody 
said one of our I saw one of our early investors the other day and um, he said the, he said, you know, I have to tell you and you you guys might have the best swag of any company <laughs> where, um, you know, and again, I'm such a dog person. I've got my picture of Sadie up here on the wall and uh, she podcasts with me every day. She's over here laying on her dog bed. And so when I had an opportunity to create the bottles. Um, we've received so many pictures from consumers who have shared that the dog runs around with a hint bottle in their mouth. And I thought, well, let's make it a little softer and uh, much more fun. So that's what we did. That's great. And, and, and you have a podcast. Why don't you tell the audience about that? Yeah. So I have a podcast. It's, uh, it's called The Kara Golden Show. It's on every Monday and Wednesday on Apple as well as um, Spotify. And my focus is really sharing the journeys of other founders and CEOs. Uh, there are always incredible stories on there, um, stories of, of challenges and, and learnings along the way, and typically uh, from incredible brands um, where people have, uh, you know, so often I think until you actually know the backstory, you think that, you know, it's a perfect brand, no mm -hmm. challenges, no struggles along the way and, and learnings that have happened. Um, so it's, uh, it's typically, you know, 30 to 40 minutes of, of really hearing people's journey. And it's, it's kind of my gift um, to listeners, um, but also my gift to other entrepreneurs and, and CEOs who are, um, really doing great, great things out there. So uh, it's a, it's been a lot of fun building that as well. It's been three and a half years. Um, it's, it's hit number one trending podcast in entrepreneurship and, um, and uh, how to education. And uh, so it's been a, it's been a lot of fun building it. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, podcasting is interesting. And it is a journey for sure. Um, about a hundred and I don't know, 45 shows in so far. And it's been, it's been a lot of fun and like you, I do guesting. And so it's, it's been fun to, uh, to do that. And I have to say, I, I, are your commercials, are they relatively new? Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, yeah. Cause I don't, I don't remember and maybe more awareness, obviously, cause I knew we were going to talk, but I noticed the TV and the radio spots now. Yeah. I, we, we have radio going and television going and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Most of those ads, um, while they're branding, they actually send consumers to drinkhint.com, which is where you can order, mm -hmm. um, product. But we know plenty of people who see the ads go to Costco or, um, their local supermarket and buy the product. And that's great too. Um, so I think it's, uh, we've, we've really found, um, a way to kind of get to the consumer. And as I said earlier, it's really about the consumer makes the choice where they shop. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Thank you again so much. I really Thank appreciate you. your time and, uh, I look forward to drinking more hint. Thank you so much. And please, uh, everybody reach out to me and let me know uh, what you think of Hint and, and if you get a chance to read the book as well. All right. Well, thank you. I'll put a, a link to the Amazon uh, in, the, in the show notes. So hopefully people will click and go buy some books. Perfect. Thank you again. All right. Thank you. Kara, I want to thank you again for joining me here at the Business Growth Cafe today. What a great conversation. I really enjoyed the opportunity to get to meet you 
and to have this conversation. You took us on a journey. As I said, I, I loved your book, Undaunted. It's kind of the theme of the show. It, it took us on a tremendous journey or took me on a journey uh, as I was reading it. And we had the opportunity to do that today as well. I encourage you listeners, if you have not read the book, please do so. Um, and if you've not tried Hint Water, I encourage you to do that as well. I think you're going to really enjoy it as I have and my family has. I appreciate uh, you listening in today. And if you're a new subscriber, thank you very much. If you're new to the show, thank you for that as well. I encourage you to become a subscriber or at least uh, add us to your podcast listening favorite so you can get alerted every time we have a new show. And also the, from the great content that you get to benefit from Either you're here because you enjoy the stories or you're here because you're looking for business advice on how it can help your business. And all of my guests help provide those kinds of insights for you to learn. So I hope you'll join me here next week at the Business Growth Cafe. Enjoy your week. Thank you for listening to today's discussion at the Business Growth Cafe with your host, Angelo Ponzi. Take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and visit our website at www.businessgrowthcafe.com. Read Angelo Ponzi's blogs at www.theponzigroup.com.